sermon text for this evening's message is Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. Again, it's Colossians 2, verses 8 through 15. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you were raised, and you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let's pray. In a very little while, all of us will be dead and standing face to face before the King, Jesus. There'll be no doubts anymore. And how I pray, Father, that you would use me in this moment, in this church, in these songs and your word to bring that certainty forward into this age lest we play games and then suddenly we're there. Oh God, I beg of you, forbid that any in the hearing of my voice would be unprepared to face Jesus. May we give ourselves 110% to knowing you so that we won't find you a stranger at that day. Grant that the drama of baptism appointed to display the glorious gospel will have its suitable effect. To that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A three-part series on baptism and church membership. We're tonight, today, on the second of those. Last time it was the importance of church membership. And in this message, the focus will be on what is baptism and how important is it. I want to strike a note immediately, a tone, a a truth. I want it to be first and foremost, namely that baptism gets its meaning and its importance from the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for our sins and from his resurrection from the dead. 
We're not talking mainly here when we talk about baptism. We're not talking mainly about a religious ritual. We're not talking mainly about a church tradition. We're talking mainly about Christ. We're talking mainly about His death. We're talking mainly about His resurrection and how He has appointed that His life, His death, His resurrection be dramatized as people pass from death to life. Don't think small thoughts when you think about baptism. Think big thoughts when you think about baptism. Think huge thoughts when you think about what is being signified when a person is buried in water and comes up out of the water. This is not a game. This is not a charade. When a husband slides a wedding ring onto his wife's finger for the first time about 30 seconds after they have become man and wife by virtue of covenant vows, it's not a small thing. You don't blow it off. You don't say, this doesn't matter. Let's all laugh and be stupid here. Let's all count this silly. It's not silly. It's big. It's weighty. It carries huge things in it. That's the note I want to strike. The way we're going to approach this is by quoting from the Bethlehem Baptist Church Elder Affirmation of Faith so that you all can remember what it is that all the elders of this church, 35 of us, of which I'm one, believe and teach about baptism. You can't be an elder at this church if you don't believe this. Okay, I'll read it to you. And then we're going to unpack it biblically and spell out some implications. We believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ in His death and resurrection by being immersed in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a sign of belonging to the new people of God, the true Israel, and an emblem of burial and cleansing, signifying death to the old life of unbelief and purification from the pollution of sin. So, I'm going to break that down into five pieces and put Bible underneath all of them because that's all that matters. What I think doesn't matter, what you think doesn't matter, what God thinks really matters, and He told us here. And so, you now assess whether as I try to put Bible under these pieces, whether I'm being faithful to the book. First, we say we believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord. What we mean by that is simply he commanded it, and he commanded it or ordained it, ordained ordinance, in such a way that it becomes an ongoing practice of the church. And we get that from Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which goes like this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, the main verb 
in that sentence is make disciples. You got, it's all surrounded by participles, subordinate verbs. Having gone, make disciples, and then two defining participles, baptizing and teaching. So he unpacks the meaning of disciple-making with two participles, baptizing, teaching. So if you ask, what does it mean to make a disciple? One of the things it means is get them baptized. That's what he said. He said other things, but that he said. The time frame of validity for that command is dictated by the promise of his help to bring it about. And the promise goes like this, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, that's the promise undergirding the command or the ordinance, go make disciples baptizing. So how long should we do this? Answer, as long as the promise holds it up to the end of the age. So till Jesus comes, our job as Christians is to so evangelize that people come to trust and be baptized. That's number one. Number two, baptism expresses union with Christ in his death and resurrection. We get this from Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. I'm just giving you the key verses. There are others, but we'll just go with the key ones. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 goes like this. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The wider context of Romans, that's Romans 6, the wider context of Romans would say that it would be a mistake if you concluded from this that water baptism is the instrument or the means by which we are united to Christ. In Romans, faith is the means by which we are united to Christ and justified. Therefore, having been justified by faith, and we're justified in union with the just one. So union with Christ in the book of Romans clearly, powerfully, essentially is wrought through faith. When you trust Jesus, you're united to Jesus. And when you're united to him, what he is, he is for you. And what he is, is just and righteous and pure and holy. And so you become just and righteous and pure and holy in him. And that's the glory of union with Christ by faith alone. So I don't want to construe these verses in a way that would contradict the main message of the book, namely Romans. We show this faith and we signify it, we symbolize it in the act of baptism. Here's an analogy, because this text 
reads with strong words about things happening in baptism. At a wedding, in the old words, we used to say things like, with this ring, I thee wed. What did we mean by that? When we say that, with this ring, I thee wed, we do not mean by that that the putting the ring on the finger makes us married. At least I don't mean that when I'm involved in it. No, it shows the covenant. It symbolizes the covenant, but the vows, the covenant vows, make the marriage. And so it is with faith and baptism. Faith unites us to Christ. Baptism symbolizes the ring with this baptism I thee wed. So, with this baptism you are united to Christ, Paul says, with that meaning, I believe. And the point we're focusing on here is the imagery, death and burial. I'll read it again. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, with baptism, with this ring. We were buried, therefore, by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the imagery of baptism is most fundamentally burial, death, resurrection. By faith we're united to him, and thus, as he died, was buried, was raised, we die, are buried, are raised, and we live in him and death is behind us. That's the glory of the Christian gospel. When you trust Jesus, your death is over. This other thing, stinger removed, power removed, gateway to paradise. Totally transformed. Hardly worth calling death anymore if you see it this way. We have died with him. Our death was died at Calvary. All the judgment of death taken there. Your old self of unbelief, rebellion, idolatry died. And the new you of faith and submission and treasure in Christ came into being. And you signify that when you're baptized in obedience to Jesus. Number three, we believe this expression of union with Christ in obedience to the ordinance of the Lord, we believe this expression of union with Christ in death and resurrection happens by being immersed in water. Stay right here at Romans 6, 3, and just take the imagery seriously. The most natural way to understand these words, we were buried with him in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life is that we are immersed in the tomb of the water symbolically and we are raised as we come up 
out of the water. So the imagery is most naturally explained by immersion. And uh, the word baptizo means dip or immerse. It doesn't mean pour. It doesn't mean sprinkle. And almost all scholars, whether they practice sprinkling or pouring or immersion, agree that the early church immersed. It's just not even argued about much anymore. In the early church, for the first couple of centuries, that's the only thing we have evidence for. There is zero evidence of anybody being sprinkled or anybody being poured over in the first couple of centuries of the Christian church. It's not what the word means. It's not what the symbolism calls for. And therefore, we don't practice it. Here's a couple of pointers in that direction. In Acts 8.37, remember the eunuch riding in the carriage and Philip comes up in and they talk about the meaning of Isaiah and he believes and he says, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip agrees. And then it says, he commanded the chariot to stop and they both went down into the water and Philip and the eunuch and he baptized him. That would be an odd thing to do if you were just going to gather a little scoop of it and, and sprinkle it on the head. That's not what happened. They went down into the water and were immersed. Or here's another one, John 3.23. John also was baptizing in Enon, John the Baptist, near Salim, because water was plentiful there. You don't need a lot of water if you're sprinkling. I reckon... I've watched a lot of infant baptisms and a lot of sprinkling baptisms, and I reckon you could baptize 200 people with a quart of water. You stick your fingers in, and the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's not, you don't need a lot of water to do that. You just need a jar. That's not what was going on in the New Testament. Almost all scholars agree with this. I'm not making fun of it. It's just the way it was. There may be other reasons for why you wouldn't want to do it that way, but that's just not the way the early church did it. It's not the way that fits the symbolism of Romans 6. Number four, baptism means doing this immersing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28:19. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It means that not just any immersing is baptism. You don't, if you're playing in the swimming pool and you're just goofing around, that's not baptism. This is a sacred and holy application of the name of God in a holy appeal to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit to be present, to make it true what we're signifying here. Salvation is of the Father purchased by the Son, applied by the Spirit. And therefore, as you move through this drama of your salvation, you call the entire Trinity to be there with gratitude for what they've done, the application of it to you now, and the preservation of it on into the newness of life so that they are honored as the ground and the means and the goal of it all. Because without the Father, there would be no salvation. Without the Son, there would be no salvation. Without the Holy Spirit, there would be no salvation. And it is so right and fitting that when we dramatize the salvation that the three persons have wrought, that we do it in the name of all three of them. Finally, number five. 
Baptism is an expression of faith and therefore for believers only. This is the most significant one in what divides the way Christians do it. The mode has some significance in pouring, sprinkling, immersing. This one has greater significance. So baptism is a, an expression of faith and therefore for believers. So let me read that key sentence again from the affirmation and then we'll look at some scripture. We believe that baptism is an ordinance of the Lord by which those who have repented and come to faith. There's the key phrase. By which those who have repented and come to faith express their union with Christ in his death and resurrection. So our understanding of baptism in the New Testament is that the meaning, the meaning of baptism includes faith. It is an act of faith, an expression of faith, a dramatizing of that which can only come about through faith, namely union with Christ in his death and resurrection. It's not something an unbeliever can do, and it's not something an infant can do. That's why we don't baptize babies, because the meaning of baptism would be contradicted if we did. So, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to go to Colossians chapter 2 with me. I'm choosing to go to Colossians 2 instead of a half a dozen other places we could go on this issue because of the personal relevance it has to me in my life. I grew up in a Baptist church, and so, you know, you'd say, well, that's why you're a Baptist, because your mom and dad were Baptists, and that's why we're all what we are. Well, maybe, maybe. I wouldn't deny that the influence is strong, but, but my schooling... Four years at Wheaton where I discovered there are Christians that aren't Baptists. And, and then three years at Fuller where I was overwhelmed with reform types, good many of whom were not Baptists and were wonderful teachers and blessed influences in my lives. And then three years in Germany where everybody and his brother's a Lutheran and I'm sitting in these seminars and I'm the only American, I'm the only English speaker and I'm the only Baptist and everybody else there is a Lutheran and... They're all looking at me when we get to 1 Peter in a class called 1 Peter, the Spirit and Baptism. And I'm trying in German to defend my views. Now, at each of those junctures of my life, this text was my life. That is, it's the place where I reposed, I rested. And I can remember looking Dr. Gopalt right in the face and saying, Colossians 2.12, Dr. Gopalt, Colossians 2.12. I can't get over it. I can't leave it. I don't give a rip what my daddy believed, what my mama believed, what Pastor Lawrence believed growing up. I believe what God says, and I can't get over it. And he was very respectful. He didn't, he didn't mock me at all. He was a godly man, Lutheran man. So I'm going to read it to you and uh, show you how it has functioned for me. We'll start at verse 11 of Colossians 2. In him, Christ also, in him, is the him is Christ, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ. And let's stop there. Let's get that strange language in front of us. Um, Paul is saying that once there was a circumcision made with hands done to the baby boys of Israel, and now in the church there is a counterpart and it isn't made with hands. You see that? Let's read it again. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. This is a new spiritual meaning given to circumcision in the Christian church. It's, there's no handwork here. This is a reality. And, and what is being cut away is not a foreskin. What is being cut away is the body of the flesh. That means, uh, on the analogy of circumcision, that Christ is cutting us free from the old body that is so used to sinning. It's just dominated by sin. It is lives in sin. It was only sinning. And he says, we're cutting that one off. You, you still have a body, but the old one, your old man, your old person, thrown away. That's the kind of imagery it seems to be in Paul's mind here with the, the new meaning of circumcision for Christians. Oh, there's so, so much significance here, and, and you'll hear a little more of it as we go on. Let's keep going. Verse 12, having been buried. Now, you see, the sentence just continues with this participle. And the participle could be at the same time or before. It's just the way the language works here. You've got to choose one or the other. So we were circumcised, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith. There it is. That, that, those two words are everything to me through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So, we've got this imagery of spiritual circumcision in verse 11, closely connected with baptism. You were circumcised having been baptized. Old body of flesh cut off, thrown away in conversion. I, th I think spiritual circumcision is virtually synonymous with the new birth. You died and you rose again in baptism. That's dramatizing the new birth. So baptism is a dramatization of the same thing circumcision signifies. So they're really closely connected. Are they not? Therefore, it's probably right. Not all Baptists want to say this. They get nervous when they say this. It's probably right to say that baptism has replaced circumcision as the mark of the people of God. Okay, getting real close to the way Presbyterians argue here. It's probably right to say that baptism has replaced circumcision as the outward mark of being part of the people of God. In the Old Testament, men, start accumulate the differences now, start accumulating in your mind the differences. Men, not women, no baby girls get this sign. A bit of an odd thing there. Aren't they in? Aren't they in? The Old Testament, men were circumcised to signify membership in the Old Covenant, people of God. And in the New Testament, men and women 
are baptized to signify membership in the new covenant people of God. Got a couple of shifts there. Circumcision to baptism, men only to men and women. Now, that has led that correlation between circumcision and and, uh, baptism has led a lot of people, like billions, (laughs) to believe that since circumcision was given to the male children of the people of God in the Old Covenant, therefore baptism should be given to the male and female children of the people of God in the New Covenant. There's the argument. Some of you asked me, are you going to address why people don't believe what you believe? Well, there it is. That's the nub of the argument. A sense of the continuity of covenants. And since the children of covenant members, at least the boys, got the sign of the covenant when they were born into a physical Jewish family. Therefore, when a covenant member, that is a Christian, has a baby born, it should be born into the covenant and be a member of the covenant and thus get the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. And therefore, you got to baptize babies. There's the argument. I don't think it's very complicated. It wins millions of people. It must have something going for it here. Now, my effort over the last 30 years of trying to decide what I believe about this and coming down over and over again where I started is that that argument doesn't work. It doesn't work textually and it doesn't work covenantally. It just sounds like it works. Let's talk text for a minute. Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which, now the which there refers to baptism, right? So let's just put it there. In baptism, you also were raised with him through faith. So in baptism... The signifying of the resurrection happens through faith. In baptism, you're raised through faith. In baptism, you're raised through faith. In baptism, you're raised through faith. That's the meaning of how it works. No faith, no resurrection. The symbolism falls to the ground. That's the meaning of baptism in Paul's mind here. In which... Baptism, you were raised with him through faith. So baptism is a drama of the death and the resurrection of Christ and gets its meaning from the faith that it expresses or the union with Christ that faith brought to pass. Now, here's another text that shows this way of thinking is just in, it's in the fibers of his brain. This next text is in Galatians chapter 3, if you want to look at it with me. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27. You don't talk like he does here if, if faith is not simply deeply woven into the meaning of baptism. And I mean the faith of the person being baptized, not the faith of the parents. There's not a hint that anybody else's faith would give meaning to your dramatization of your death with Christ 
and your resurrection. So here we are at Galatians 3, 26 and 27, and it goes like this. Galatians 3, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Okay? You're sons of God through faith. That's how you become a son of God. In Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For, a very important word here, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, how does that work? We teach our young guys here entering the ministry this method of interpretation called arcing, in which we try to just understand how propositions that come back to back relate to each other, and this is big. You think it through. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Turn it around and put the second one first. Since you were baptized into Christ, therefore, clearly, you are sons of God in Christ through faith. The only way that argument works is that Paul thinks of baptism in terms of faith. It won't work any other way. So I conclude that in Paul's way of thinking, baptism never should happen apart from faith in the one being baptized. You are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ to put on Christ. Since you were baptized into Christ, therefore we know that in Christ you are all sons of God through faith, because that's what baptism is. So, covenantally, I said it's textually, covenantally a problem. When the shift happened in redemptive history from Old Covenant to New Covenant, Old Covenant with the Jews, New Covenant with the church, when the shift happened in redemptive history from Old Covenant to New Covenant, from circumcision to baptism, there was a shift. There were a bunch of shifts. There was a shift from a focus on ethnic Israel as the people of God, where only males were given the sign of membership in the people, to a spiritual focus on the church of all nations, not just Israel, with both male and female being given the sign of membership in the people, namely baptism, and as you would expect, with faith being essential to baptism, there's a shift from a focus on spiritual birth as the pathway into the family, not physical birth as the pathway into the family. The parallels really do work. You just have to get the dividing line at the right place. Of course, newborns should be baptized. New reborns. That's the analogy. Baby believers, they just believed. Quick, act here. 
Let them dramatize this before the world the way Jesus said to. Of course, there's the analogy. The shift away from Israel to church, men and women, I mean men only to men and women, circumcision to baptism, physical birth to spiritual birth, works. But if you say the real analogy is to carry over, you're born into a Jewish family, you're part of the Old Covenant, you're born to one Christian parent, you're in the church, you got major problems. Problems with texts, problems in the church, problems with the covenant. The new covenant is, I will put my spirit in their heart. I will cause them to walk according to my statutes. That's the new covenant. That's the meaning of the new covenant. The new covenant people are not people of the flesh. They're people of the spirit. That my children are born to me means nothing about whether at that moment they're in the covenant or eight days later they're they're in the covenant. They are born into the covenant when they're born again. And that's when they get baptized. So we can see how the meaning of baptism is woven together with membership in the people of God, can't you? And since the local church is an expression of the people, the the New Covenant, global, universal people of the New Covenant, since the local church is an expression, then baptism is very closely connected to membership in the local church. In the New Testament, being a Christian, being baptized, belonging to the New Covenant people of God, and being a member in the local church were linked together. If you had tried, just think of Paul trying to figure this out, if you had tried to pull one of those pieces out, not a Christian or not baptized or not in the New Covenant people or not a member of a local church, it would have made no sense to Paul at all. They went together. To be in the covenant people is to be in one of the expressions of it. To be a Christian was to be baptized. Some of you have played with this far too long. Way too long. Hundreds of you. Hundreds of you. Dragging your feet. It's embarrassing to have bare feet, in front, bare feet in front of the church. My legs are white. I'm losing my hair. This is describing John Piper, okay? I look silly in a robe. Isn't that good for me? I, do, I wear this so I don't look silly. Well, actually, I do look silly for wearing this. But sometimes silliness is good for you. And there are a lot of other silly reasons for why we delay. I'm closing Baptism, I conclude, is important. It was uncompromising. These are three U's. Can help remember? It was uncompromisingly commanded by the Lord Jesus. Number two, it was universally administered to Christians entering the early church. Three, it was uniquely connected to conversion in an unrepeatable expression 
of saving faith. You don't get baptized a bunch of times. You get baptized once because you get saved once. Baptism is important. Now, let's step back now. We've got two messages on the table. Last week, meaning of local church and church membership. This week, meaning of baptism and its relationship to local church. And here's my conclusion. Baptism is important. The nature of the local church is important as a sacred expression of the universal body of Christ. Number two, failing to be baptized is serious. Excluding genuine believers from the local church is serious. Three, there are godly, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, God-centered followers of Jesus who fail to see the dreadfulness of not being baptized as a believer. A lot of my friends are in that category. And there are godly, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting, God-centered followers of Jesus who fail to see the dreadfulness of excluding such people from church membership. question we should ask is not only hard to answer, it's hard to formulate. I'm say that again. I can't, this is the end of my sermon. I left five lines left on my notes. As I tried to pose it to myself one more time, what should the question be that we're asking? It's as hard to formulate almost as the answer is hard to give. So, here's my closing lines. Perhaps the Lord, in his mercy, will show us how to do both in a way that will cut the knot for his glory. That is, honor the seriousness of membership in the local church and Honor the seriousness of baptism. That's what I mean by both. May the Lord grant a wisdom like Solomon's, or better, a wisdom like the one who was better and greater than Solomon, the Lord Jesus. We have the mind of Christ. He doesn't want us to be paralyzed by this issue. He doesn't want us to be divided on how we think about this issue, and that's where I stop. So I thought to myself, what kind of a song do you sing at the end of a, a message that ends with a question? <laughs> I'm supposed to be strong and got conviction here and declare the answer. So I, I, I said, I need a song about wisdom. And I went to uh, Be Thou My Vision, which has the verse in it, Be Thou Our Wisdom, or My Wisdom. And I wrote a new verse for it, and I stuck it in. So we're going to sing it, and when you get to the verse you don't recognize, and I'm saying this on camera, because we're all going to sing this, all three campuses, we're going to do this. Um, I'll read you the verse that I wrote, and I, I don't think it's biased though I am biased. Um, but I'm trying not to, to say anything that would be unduly biased. Here's the verse. Teach us, O Father, 
your wisdom to search till we embrace all your love for the church. Let your baptism become our sure oath. Help us, O Savior, to honor them both. I think we could all pray that, couldn't we? Whatever side you feel inclined toward on whether you think baptism is more at stake or the nature of the church is more at stake, that's where we are. Teach us, O Father, your wisdom to search till we embrace all your love for the church. Let your baptism become our sure oath. Help us, O Savior, to honor them both. Let's pray. Why don't you stand up with me? On all, all the campuses, just go ahead and stand up. Father in heaven, I love Bethlehem. I love your church universal. I love baptism and the beautiful drama that it is of being buried and rising with Christ. And I love membership in the church and what it signifies. And I pray for both Solomonic wisdom... Show us how to say, bring me a sword, let's cut the baby in half. And even more, we long for Christ's wisdom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we close with a prayer to declare that you're our vision, you're our wisdom, you're our king, you're our treasure, you're our riches, and we want you to give us light. In Jesus' name, amen.